May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. I have some pretty exciting news. It seems that out of 7 billion people on the planet, yours truly has been selected by a Nigerian prince um, to receive a hefty allowance for my willingness to participate in the little endeavor that he has going on. It seems that my Nigerian friend, that I mentioned he's from the royal family, um, has sent me an email. And, um, and in this email, he says to me that um, for just a, a small bit of work, he's willing to park $12 million in my bank account. And, um, and he'll need to leave it there for a couple weeks, and then he'll take it out, but he'll leave 20% for me. That's $2.4 million. Don't sneeze at $2.4 million. That's a lot of money on a clergyman's salary. And so he's, he's going he's to send me $2.4 million if I just let him park some money in my bank account. Well, there were a little bit of complications, I should have told you. Um, it, this, um, there was this fee that his government required him to pay to get his money out of the bank account and into mine. And so um, it was just $3,000. All I had to do was send him $3,000. And then he was going to put the money in later and promise to pay that back together with my $2.4 million, which I thought was a fair amount. And, and I can hardly wait. <laughs> and you're saying, and you're going to wait a long time, aren't you? And you're going to wait, and you're going to wait, and you're going to wait some more. Because there is no Nigerian prince. Well, there might be, but he's not on the other end of the email conversation that we're having, right? There's no $12 million. He's just trying to use my greed to fleece me out of 3000 bucks. But the truth is, I never really believed it. I didn't buy the Nigerian prince story. The first time I got that email, if you've, not, if you've never had it, let me just tell you, it's not real, okay? Don't do it. But the first time I've got it, I, I immediately... I immediately suspected something was up. I smelled something fishy right away because my mother, she told me, you know, don't get something for nothing. If somebody offers you something for nothing, you better beware. So I was thinking about what I was going to do with my $2.4 million, and I was going to buy my mother a corsage to (laughs) thank her for all that hard work. But she told me, don't. Don't trust it when somebody tells you you're going to get something for nothing because you're not. I almost did get duped by another email. This really happened. I got an email one day, and it said it was from my friend Alan Canapel. Um, not the older, the younger. Um, anyway, so a younger Alan, Alan the Lesser, call, uh, sends me an email, and he says, um, he says uh, Joe, uh, Lisa, and I are in Mexico, or maybe it was Dominican Republic, I can't remember where it was, and we were mugged, beaten, and robbed. They took all of our money and credit cards. Thankfully, we still have our passports. Could you wire me some money so I can get home? And I thought, well, of course I will, you know? But then I thought, well, perhaps I should call him. You know, there was just enough pause, just enough pause for me to pick up the phone and dial his number. And you know, he's at home in Livonia, had never traveled anywhere near the Dominican or Mexico or wherever it was. And so there it was, another one. A third type of scam con job that is going around. I've not run into this one yet. It's when you get an actual telephone call, and the person will ask for you by name. Perhaps you know, hi, could I speak to Joseph Boisel? 
hi, this is he, you know, I would say, and then they would say, um, hello, yes, my name is so-and-so, I'm calling from the IRS, we've been trying to reach you for three years, you have a delinquent tax bill that is due in the amount of $2,187.39, and if this is not paid today, you will be arrested and charged with tax evasion. This really does happen. And um, the only way that you can pay for it is by a wire transfer or by a prepaid debit card. <laughs> if somebody ever says that to you, I mean, be weary. You know, this is, this is not real. This is a scam. This is a con job. And people are out there. That's what they'll do. There are thieves in this world who will use your avarice. They will use your sympathy. Or they will use your fear. Whatever you are most vulnerable with. Whatever emotion kind of gets you, there is somebody out there to exploit that as a means of making themselves richer and you poorer. I should tell you as a little bit as a backdrop to the gospel reading today. There is this event that took place in chapter 9. It's kind of connected to chapter 10 of John's gospel. And it was like this. Jesus is walking through the city and they see this man who was sitting on the curb. I imagine he's about 30 or 40 years old. He was born blind. All his life he's been blind. And he's a beggar. And he's sitting out there. And Jesus' friends look at this man and he say, What did this fellow, was it just something this fellow did? Or was it something his parents did that caused him to be born blind? And Jesus says, Neither. And then he says, Let's stop. And they stop and he performs a miracle. He brings healing to this man without ever being asked. He heals him. Suddenly this fellow who could never see can see. I find the reaction of his neighbors quite interesting. Have you ever noticed the reaction of his neighbors? Some of them were, they were euphoric. Wow, this guy who has never seen all his life, he can suddenly see. But a lot of people, maybe even most of the people, would say things like, is that really the fellow who used to be blind? <laughs> no, they say, he looks like him, but it's not him. I mean, it's got to be somebody else. Every day, they walked past this guy sitting on a street corner with his little tin cup and his glasses and his, you know, cane. And nobody, well, everybody saw him, but nobody saw him. They didn't see him. They couldn't pick him up out of a lineup. Even though they had seen him every single day of his life. And so the reaction is a little bit interesting. Along come some other people who are also reacting quite interesting. They're the religious police. They're called the Pharisees in the New Testament. And that sort of is like, um, for people who have read any of the New Testament, the bad guys. <laughs> These are the bad guys, Jesus is the good guy. But they're not bad guys at all. The Pharisees were, they were the, um, the religious uh, vanguard. They were the, the religious conservatives, the traditionalists. Dare I say, they were our kind of people. You know? they, they, uh, they were very scrupulous about reading the Bible and following it and, and, and keeping all the ethical demands just so. They weren't bad people at all. But they had one fatal flaw. They forgot that religion was a vehicle to help get people to God, not an end in itself. And so they began to, to force people and place heavy burdens on them and sort of become the police that would demand that people sort of serve religion instead of the other way around. And so when they hear this person being healed, they're not happy that there's a healing. They rather want to know, is the one who has been healed qualified to receive this healing? 
I mean, is he a good person? Does he deserve it? Moreover, the one who did the healing, what are his credentials? Is he properly licensed to do this healing? Is he the right kind of healer for this community? We want to know this. The, shepherd, the, the Pharisees were supposed to be the shepherds of God's people, but they abdicated that vocation and responsibility. And so Jesus sees this, and this is the whole event, and he tells his friends a story. He says, he says to his friends, look, you can tell a sheep thief real easy. The sheep thief climbs over the wall and tries to steal sheep. A shepherd walks right through the gate and leads his sheep out, and they're, they're fine. They'll follow him wherever he goes. You can tell the difference. In order to know what he's saying, in the ancient world, they would have these big pens, you know, maybe as big as this room here, stone wall, maybe three or four or five feet high. And, and inside the pen, they would put um, multiple flocks of sheep. So Shepherd George and Shepherd Sam and Shepherd Joe, we'd all put our sheep inside the same pen at night. And the pen would protect the sheep from bears and wolves and lions, but not from humans. They were still vulnerable to a human climbing over the wall, getting in and stealing sheep. And so there was only one way in and one way, one gate in the front. And every shepherd would have to take guard duty and actually would have to sleep right there at the gate all night long. Jesus says to his friends, there's lots of sheep thieves out there. And I kind of imagine that his friends scratch their heads and say, are we going into the shepherding business? I mean, are we thinking about taking up sheeps? Uh, I, I, thought, I thought that maybe that you were um, a carpenter. And uh, what is with all this sheep talk all of a sudden? You know, they're, they're a bit baffled by this. But the religious vanguard, the Pharisees, they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about right away. They knew that he was talking about this metaphor of Israel and God, this shepherd-sheep relationship. It had written, been written about all throughout the Old Testament. You even, you even said one of the Psalms that were very popular even in Jesus' day. Carol said a favorite. It's been a favorite for thousands of years. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm his sheep. He's my shepherd. This relationship that goes on. And Jesus says, and, and God is very angry when someone tries to exploit his sheep. When they abuse them or slaughter them for their own purposes. Listen again to Jesus' words. Very truly I tell you, I am the gate. I'm not a gate. He's not literally a gate, right? I'm the one who lies down at the gate. To protect the sheep, I protect them with my own body. That's the point of the metaphor. The thief climbs over the wall to steal, to kill, destroy. The thief is not just the devil, although the devil is certainly kind of an echo here, right? The thief are, are those Pharisees who want to kick people out of synagogue in, the, in chapter 9. They want, to do, they, they want to get rid of anybody who doesn't conform to their idea of what it means to be a proper follower of God. They have forgotten. And this is critical. If you go away from Good Shepherd Sunday remembering one thing, remember this. The point of religion is to reconcile people to God. Period. The point of religion is to reconcile people to God. Now, reconciling people to God takes a long time. It's not a one-off sort of thing, is it? Uh, in April 4th, 1989, I came to faith in Jesus. 
I remember that because I was a very rascally and um, ornery, worse than ornery, ornery doesn't really do justice. I had lived a very bad teenage life, okay? And so at 20 years old, um, yeah, it was a very clear mark, uh, demarcation for me. Your story may not be like that at all. Maybe your story is um, you can't even remember when you came to believe. You just can't remember ever not believing. That's great. Rock on. That's, that's fantastic. I think I just said rock on. Did you get that? Yeah. Th- that's wonderful. You maybe um, are a person who says, you know, I can't remember the time, but it was, you know, close to the birth of my second child or right after my father's death or Christmas 1967, somewhere around there. I mean, maybe it's not as, as clear. You, you sort of remember an era. Whatever it is, that's not really the, the important point. The point is, is that time when you came to believe was the beginning of a journey, not the end of it. And religion is about a means of helping us along the journey to learn what it means to, to love God and to walk with God. What's more, worship isn't just about us coming to a, um, a, a self-indulged deity who simply wants to be congratulated on a regular basis. It's rather about us having an opportunity to gather together with a Father who loves us, who wants a relationship with us, and urges us to come and be part of the family. Our oldest son, pray for, pray for Abby and me, will you? He, he took off on Tuesday to Oregon in a, in a 1995 pickup truck, okay, that has 250,000 miles on it. And he drove to Oregon, and he called me last night, and he made it. Oh, my. Yeah. That's not the end of the story. We want him back, okay? I guess it's going to have 250 and, you know, whatever, another 2,500 on that truck. We want, I'll fly him back. I don't care. We just come back. And I told him, you know, the internship's over in November. I want you home on Sunday. You don't have to live in my house, but you can be around, you know, um, to, to watch the Browns with me and to eat chicken wings and what, all this. And, and I want Zachary and Benjamin and Dietrich. I want them all to do that because that's what a parent wants. And that's what God wants. He wants us home, right? And he wants to be in relationship with us and he wants to be in communication with us. And Jesus says, this is the idea, this is the practice, the point and practice of religion. Not to expel people or exploit them or abuse them, but to bring them home. When I was in seminary, I had this great professor, his name was Bob Tuttle. He was the perfect combination of godliness and orneriness, which I think is a beautiful thing, don't you? And um, anyway, Bob Tuttle uh, was this great professor, and, and he was telling us one day in class this story. He said, I was in Cairo, Egypt, which I thought was interesting in itself. But I was in Cairo, Cairo Egypt, sitting in a McDonald's. And he said, um, I'm sitting in McDonald's with my Egyptian friend, and we're talking, and I look out the window, and there's this guy walking down the street. There are four lanes of traffic. This guy is walking down along the side of the street, leading 50 sheep down the road. Cars going everywhere. Traffic, you know, horns honking, all that sort of stuff. He said this guy then steps into the street, stops traffic, and he leads 50 sheep across four lanes of stopped traffic. The cars back-to-back honking, yelling obscenities out the window, making hand gestures. And this guy, by himself, gets 50 sheep across all this traffic. He said, I sat there and watched it. It was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And he said, coincidentally, about three days later, I'm with the same guy. 
we're walking down a different street this time. We're talking and chatting, and I see this, this semi-trailer there. And the semi-trailer is just packed with sheep. And there's a fellow on the back of it with a ramp, guardrails up on the side of the ramp. There's a building that the, the ramp is leading into, and he's trying to get these sheep out of, the, out of the back of the semi, down the ramp, and into the building. He said it was the most awkward thing ever. Because none of the sheep would want to go down. They just kept fighting and bad and bleeding and whatever they do. And he said the guy had a stick and he was hitting these sheep, pushing them, shoving them. They didn't want to go down this ramp. And Bob says, I looked at my friend and I said, three days ago, 50 sheep, four lanes of traffic, no problem. This guy has guardrails on the sides of this ramp and he can't get a single sheep down that ramp. He said, my Egyptian friend looked at me and without hesitation he said, oh, that's easy. The guy at McDonald's, he was a shepherd. That guy is a butcher. And the sheep know the difference. Yes, they do. And if you ever walk with Jesus, you know the difference. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.